All right, let's turn uh, to Psalm 94 in your Pew Bibles. It's on page 498. It's also printed in your bulletin there. And we're continuing on in our summer sermon series titled Centered on the Psalms. I almost can't believe I did it, but I did. It's in the summer of 2005. I just graduated seminary. Leslie and I both knew we wanted to plant a church somewhere. We just didn't know where. So uh, I packed up my Ford Explorer um, camping gear and bikes on the top and set off by myself uh, out to Colorado to meet with some people. Then I headed north to Wyoming and then Montana and then over into Idaho, which is a beautiful country. And then I finished off by uh, heading down to Utah. I went to Moab, Utah. Not so much to see if they needed a church, but I heard the mountain biking was really good there. (laughs) Yeah, two mountain bike stories, uh, two weeks in a row. Sorry about that. If you weren't here last week, you missed it. Um, So I arrive at the campsite. It's not a huge campground. There's about 20 other campsites that were up and running. I unpack, set up my tent, pumped air into my bike tires and set off on what really is the world-famous Slick Rock Trail in Moab, Utah. Had a wonderful bike ride, didn't run out of water this time. Came back, and I had a nice meal, a little tired, the sun was setting. The whole campsite, everybody in the campgrounds was kind of going to bed, so I crawled into my tent, and I had the best night's sleep until about midnight. When two vans plus other vehicles loaded with young partiers showed up at the campgrounds, and it was like spring break. We're talking loud music, loud voices, loud everything. Now, I thought for sure they were just going to unpack, and they were going to crawl into their uh, tents and just go to sleep, but it went on and on and on. I could not sleep, and I was certain nobody else in the campgrounds could sleep either, after a while, I got, I got angry. I got ticked. I was like, what kind of people would do this? Do they not know that there's others trying to sleep? And my, my indignation and my anger just started boiling within me. The nerve of these people. How inconsiderate. Then I hatched my idea. It took me about 20 minutes to low crawl my way 75 yards to their campsite and hide behind one of their vans in the shadows. Do you know when you you can take off those little caps off of the tires, the stems? Do you know you can take a pebble and stick it in there and then put it back on and it pushes down ever so slightly on the valve stem, hardly makes a hissing noise, and after about two hours, the tire is completely flat. I picked up more than one pebble that night. And then I crept away. When I got far enough away, I giggled my way back to my tent. The noise didn't go away, but as I laid there, oh, there was peace in my heart. (laughs) You can see I slept in the next morning, no doubt. And as I got up and I'm packing, everything's packed up. I got both of my beautiful bikes on the roof of my Ford Explorer. And I realized, ah, they're awake. 
I look across. I could see they're really frustrated. I can't hear them this time. But I, I can tell by their gestures that they said something like this. What the hey? I think it was hey. What the hey? <laughs> How does this happen to so many tires? Did somebody do this to me? To us? How inconsiderate of them. And then I turned on the engine, turned left and headed north on U.S. Highway 191. And then something happened that would make even the strongest of Christians believe in karma. (laughs) As I got that old Ford Explorer up to highway speed, which for me is perhaps a little faster than most of you, I heard this noise, and in the rear view mirror, I saw my prized, beautiful, irreplaceable mountain bike go flying off, land on the road, and did like Olympic gymnastics tumbling routine until it finally, 100 yards later, slid into the dusty, gravelly shoulder, um, completely destroyed. Perhaps vengeance is best left in God's hands. (laughs) Not mine. Let's read about that. I know this might be a hard topic for some of you. Psalm 94 is our text today. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up. O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, My soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, 
if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Even though it can be a bitter pill to swallow, um, it's a little more challenging than, say, Psalm 23. And yet it is a word for us this morning. We are a people um, who seek to do what's right, and yet we become the victims. And we even know that we are people who hurt others. And that we are in, in, um, in line for judgment were it not for your son, Jesus. So help us to think rightly about this text. Um, may it give us wisdom and joy, we pray. Amen. You know, the psalm begins with words that cause many ears to recoil. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. And the ending seems even worse. Wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. These words cause many in our culture to recoil. My God would never judge anybody for their actions. And certainly he would not be a God of vengeance. Surely God is too good to judge anyone. And you know, many modern Christians, upon reading psalms like this and other ones like it, um, want, to, want to fast forward beyond the judgment of God so they can just talk only about his grace. But if God is a God of mercy and grace, then what is his mercy and grace saving you from? We should find it troubling and yet also convicting that our culture is so quick to judge people, but so slow to agree that God has a right to judge. We judge people by the bumper stickers on their cars, by whether they're vegan or not, by the people they voted for. We're quick to judge. We're people who are quick to condemn. We get riled up at those others. But when asked if God will judge anyone, the answer is, how could he be? He's a God of love after all. But love and justice are not separated. They belong together. This psalm is divided easily into six sections as we study them. That My hope is that we will come to, to trust in God's judgment. We need to trust in God's judgment in the sense that his decisions are holy and good and wise and perfect. But also we need to affirm that God cannot overlook evil and must judge all that is wrong with this world. And we must welcome this. We must trust God's judgment. Like I said, this is divided into six parts. As we look at them, we hopefully will will learn how this psalm applies to us as Christians. The first part, we see the cry. It's in verses 1 through 3. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Here the psalmist cries out to God to do something, that is to to bring justice, to repay evildoers for the hurt that they have brought into this world. Now before you're quick to judge God for being a God who brings people to justice, consider how readily we people cry out for vengeance. We cry out for vengeance at some of the pettiest offenses. The restaurant server botches your order, so you reamer on Yelp. Minor offenses like this get our blood boiling 
Can you remember a time recently when someone like totally ticked you off and you wanted to get back at them? We feel entitled to vengeance. We feel entitled to it over the pettiest offenses. Like we have every right to be vengeful, but yet for some reason we don't say God has a right to be vengeful too, right? In a couple places in scripture, God speaks these words. He says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Now, why is it that God says, leave vengeance to me? Why is this? Well, if we take vengeance in our own hands, do we not often overreact? That's why God's law says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, God isn't saying if somebody knocks out your tooth that you must knock out theirs too. In fact, there is no record in the whole Bible of anybody's getting an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. God isn't saying what you should do, but rather what you should not do. God is laying down a principle. I don't want my people to overreact, to overpunish. When someone knocks out your tooth, don't kill the entire family. An eye for an eye, no more. The punishment is to fit the crime. And so, since we rarely do that, (laughs) vengeance is right to be in God's hands. The psalmist cries out to God because only God has the right to judge and the fairness to do so. But also we see the psalmist is crying out to God against sin itself. God's people are to hate sin. We're to hate sin when we see it in other people. And we're to hate sin when we see it in ourselves. We are to see it and to observe it and to lament over all the heartache and suffering that sin has caused this world. In our sorrow, we're to cry out to God. That's what the first section shows us, the cry. In verses 4 to 7, we see the complaint. In verses 4 to 7, the psalmist, the psalmist uses the pronoun they four times. They, 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 they. He is pointing to people in his own society who are living hurtful lives as if God doesn't even exist. If you know the history of Israel, there were many kings um, and people under him who, who lived evil, godless lives. And the result was that the people in the land suffered. They crush your people, O Lord, says the psalmist in verse 5, and they afflict your heritage. Have you ever noticed how we typically only notice injustice when it's done against us? We often don't have eyes to see injustice done towards other people or groups, do we? The mature believer doesn't just see justice done against themselves. They see how the godless cause others to suffer. And it's usually who? It's the marginalized in society. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. When the godless have their way in society, those who should receive priority treatment get kicked to the curb. In verse 7, the psalmist reveals the mindset of the arrogant. They live as if God doesn't exist. Look at verse 7. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. The corrupt rulers in Israel thought that since God hasn't done anything yet, and there's been a couple generations of, of them, he must not care, 
or he must not be powerful in order to do something, or maybe he just doesn't even exist. You know, before coming to faith in Christ at age 29, I used to say there cannot be a God, there is no God, because of the suffering in the world. You know the claim, how can there be an all-powerful and an all-loving God and suffering at the same time? All three cannot be true. The psalm forces us to think that through. I'm indebted to the theologian Peter Crave this morning on this point in addressing the question. He has an article on what is God's answer to human suffering? Crave states the answer must be someone, not something. The problem of our suffering is about someone. And in Jesus Christ, we have the answer to our suffering. It's a personal answer. Jesus is the answer to the question, how can there be both a loving, powerful God and suffering in this world? The answer is that God himself, eternal God, sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, and entered into our story of suffering. Christ says, the answer is not a timeless truth, but a once-for-all catastrophic event as real as the story in today's newspapers. It's a story that has become so familiar to us, right? The cross, we hear it all the time, right? But angels themselves tremble to gaze at things we yawn at. He goes on to say, it's kind of a lengthy quote, so bear with me. And however strange the story of Christ, it is it is the only key that fits the lock of our tortured lives and needs. We need a surgeon, and he came, and he reached into our wounds with bloody hands. He didn't give us a placebo or a pill or good advice. He gave us himself. He came. He entered space and time and suffering. He came like a lover Love seeks above all intimacy, presence, togetherness, not happiness. Better unhappy with her than happy without her. That is the word of a lover. He came. That is the salient fact, the towering truth. That alone keeps us from putting a bullet through our heads. He came. Then he points to Job. Job is satisfied even though the God who came gave him absolutely no answers to all of his thousand tortured questions. God did the most important thing, and he gave the most important gift himself. It's a lover's gift. He finishes by saying, Out of our tears, our waiting, our darkness, our agonized aloneness, out of our weeping and wondering, and out of our cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He came all the way right into that cry. So my friends, the answer to the question, how can there be an all-powerful, all-loving God and suffering is God's own Son on the cross. We might not be able to understand it, but in the cross we can see that God understands. And he's given us a beautiful, reasonable, 
understanding through his son. I know for some this is a tough topic. It took me a while to wrap my head around it. I still can't quite figure it all out. But we do have a few books on our book table. Um, three of them. The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Mere Christianity and the Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. If you want to wrestle with, those, with, that, with that idea some more. Now back to our psalm. This, this second section tells us that the godless think that God does not see them. And ironically, the third section is a warning, a warning that God actually does see. We see the warning in verses 8 through 11. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? And then he speaks of God the creator. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He, for, he who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nation, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. The psalmist is saying that because God is our creator, that is, he gave us ears, eyes, and minds, he is able to see and hear and know everything that we do. Do you know our government has an agency, the NSA, the National Security Agency? And for years now, they have recorded every phone call, email, and text you have ever made. And it's stored somewhere, probably in Utah. (laughs) Now, most people, when they're made aware of this, they're bothered, and rightly so. And yet, how much more should we be bothered by the revelation that the God who created us, who made us in his image so that we would display his glory through how we lived in his creation, how much more should we be concerned that our maker sees and hears and knows everything? about us. Now, many people downplay their culpability. There's another book on our book table by Cornelius Plantiga, Jr. (laughs) I guess Sr. thought it was a great name. We're going to give it to my son, right? (laughs) Cornelius Plantiga, Jr. Thanks, Dad. All right. He's actually a brilliant scholar. I recommend the book. There might just be one copy left, but anyway. He has a book. It's titled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary on Sin. Plantica tells the story in this book of two men who conspire to marry and murder a rich woman and make off with all of her money. They carry out their plot, and immediately they become suspects in the case. After constant interrogation and charging and interrupting of their lives, they lashed out at the investigators and claimed that because their lives had been so interfered with, they should not be punished, but rather consoled. This side of God's judgment day, many don't like to think that it's their fault. They only had bad circumstances. And so surely God won't punish me. I hope he punishes others, but not me. But this psalm flatly contradicts such thinking. Nothing and no one will escape God's judgment unless by grace, through faith in Christ, their life is atoned for. And yet many persist. God will not judge anyone. And he will surely not punish anyone. And he will surely never send anybody to hell. 
C.S. Lewis, in his response, uh, in his book, The Problem of Pain, it's helpful. It's helpful for me as I wrestled with this. Here's what he said. Listen closely. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out all their past sins at all costs? To give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on the cross at Calvary. To forgive them? They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. C.S. Lewis is saying that hell is the place where those who say no to God in this lifetime get their wish for all eternity. I'm not saying this is an easy doctrine to swallow. Christians do not rejoice over hell the way in which we rejoice over heaven. But there is good news to the bad news. God has given us his son, the perfect and holy and good Son, who who lived as your advocate here on earth and died in your place if you would but trust your life to him. God must and will judge everyone. On that day, will you stand in your sin or will Christ stand in your place? So the psalmist gives us a warning. God sees all. So turn to God and seek his mercy and grace. Enjoy his forgiveness and then walk in the goodness of his grace. Now for section four. Here the psalmist presents us reassurance. God will care for his people. You know, as we saw last week, Christians often find themselves in the wilderness, uh, figuratively or, or literally. Hardship and suffering becomes us all, believer and unbeliever alike. At times, our our faith can be stretched almost to the breaking point, right? So the psalmist presents us with this great reassurance. God will care for his people. That's a promise of verse 12 through 15. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from his days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. I'm indebted to Legan Duncan this morning for a few points. And here's what he, how he explains it. He says, in other words, the psalmist is acknowledging that sometimes the righteous fall prey to the wicked in this world. Does that mean that God has forgotten them? No. Does that mean God is not caring for them? No. He may not be sparing them from tribulation, but he is sparing them in tribulation. He may not be keeping them from tribulation, even at the hands of the wicked, but he is keeping them in their tribulation, even if it is in the hands of the wicked. As we saw last week, it's okay to cry out to God to deliver you from your suffering circumstances. But the Christian has something even far better, a Savior who will suffer with us in the midst of our circumstances. 
And so we must come to know this truth. God often allows his children to endure hardships, sometimes even brutal hardships, so that we can grow in Christ-like character and grow in love and dependence towards God. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Bible calls this discipline. God makes us more like Jesus through our suffering. And so, Christian, you must plant this truth deep within you. Sometimes God grants us relief from our trials, but other times he grants us grace to bear it. Knowing this reassures us, does it not? If my Savior suffered by God's, and by God's grace endured, so too I may suffer and by God's grace endure as well. Some of you here need to be reminded of that this morning. The psalmist also reassures us in this way. Verse 13, there will be a pit dug for the wicked. Those who live today as, if, as God's enemies and who bring sin and sorrow upon the face of God's creation, there is coming a day when it will all end. Justice is ahead. God has a pit dug for the wicked. And they arrogantly think that God does not see. They boast on how they've risen to the top. Never mind how they got there. The day may seem far in the future, but Jesus has promised that all will rise from the grave and face a final judgment. They will have to give an account for every careless word or thought or deed. Those who have Christ have God's mercy and pardon. Those who do not have Christ have God's justice and punishment. It's as simple as that. Christian, do you see how the gospel gives you reassurance in the midst of your suffering? You can endure hardship as discipline, knowing that all who harm you one day will stand before a perfect judge, and all of their offenses will be accounted for. And this truth produces patience in you. Section 5 is the testimony Verses 16 through 19, we learn that God is always protecting his people, even when they do not realize it themselves. Verses 16 through 19. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? And then check this out. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. In other words, if God's grace hadn't been ever present in my life, I would be equally under condemnation as the wicked people around me. And in verse 18, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Have you ever felt like that? Like, like your foot was slipping, you're losing grip, you're about to slip away. And the psalmist says that, that when I thought that, he said, I came to realize that the Lord, Yahweh, was actually holding me up all along. And notice that the psalmist um, doesn't just credit God, the Lord. What does he say? He says, it's your steadfast love, O Yahweh, that held me up. Once again, steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's every week. It keeps showing up. There it is again. It means committed, loyal, till death do us part kind of love. It's agape love. It's unconditional love. 
Love that the believer does not earn, but is rather a gift of God's grace towards them. This psalmist knew that, that if it wasn't for God's grace, for his steadfast love, for his mercy towards him, he would be just like the evildoers around him. It was God who held him up. Love is a gift. This love is a gift from God. So what is it that separates the wicked from the righteous? Is it that the Christian no longer sins? No, we sin. And hopefully, we regret it, we confess it, and we make things right. But the Christian has received a special love from God, a love that says, I will not let you go. My son lived for you. My son died for you. So you are now my son or my daughter, and nothing can take that away. I will hold you even when you fall The psalmist delights in God's steadfast love, his hesed. And it's what holds him up, what protects him throughout the day, throughout his trials. How about you? Have you experienced God's hesed, his steadfast love? Is your relationship with God based upon that? And so the psalmist testifies in verse 19, also this amazing truth. The Lord consoles him. His soul. Verse 19. When the cares of my heart are many. Have you been there, right? The cares of my heart are many. I can't even begin to count them. What do we read? Your consolations cheer my soul. Let this, think, let this sink in. For every care you have in your heart, God has a consolation for your soul. Why? Because he loves you. Because he doesn't want you to slip. Because he wants you to experience his mercy and his grace. For every hardship you suffer, every time you think the Lord is far from you, for every care of your heart, God has a consolation, a comfort, a relief to cheer you up. Many of you have experienced that. This is your testimony too. It's not just the testimony of the psalmist. So rejoice in your testimony. Now for the last section. It tells us that God's judgment is certain. Verses 20 to 23. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Right? Um, Those who frame injustice by statute. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This verse, once again, presents the sobering truth. Those who say no to God in this lifetime, who live proudly as if he doesn't exist, who, who even if they say they believe in God and yet live as if God really has no authority over their lives, all those who say no to God in this lifetime, even that seemingly nice older lady um, or the vilest of young man, all who say no to God will get their wish for all eternity. God must do this. And you know, we're pretty good at pushing eternity to the back of our minds, aren't we? Even Christians struggle to live in light of eternity. But there will be a day coming when all the pain and all the sorrow of today, of this world that's full of rebellion from God, full of sin, it will all be judged. As God has promised, as Jesus has said over and over, God will create his world in perfection for all of eternity. And all who trusted in themselves will be judged fairly. That movie of everything that they've done wrong throughout their lives, yes, there'll be some good things on it, 
but they will see what they've done and how they've lived apart from God. And they will agree with God's final judgment. And they will depart from God's presence forever and ever. But all who have been upheld by the steadfast love of God will rise to eternal life as the Lord has promised. Heaven will come down. And just as surely as God has wiped wickedness from the face of this earth, he too will then wipe from your face every tear. That is his promise. Judgment is certain. Those are the six sections. Reverend Duncan helps us to ask the question to wrap it up. So what does it mean for us in the Christian life that judgment is certain? Well, he says it ought to bring about three things. Accountability, gratitude, and humility. God's final judgment and justice of it, the comprehensiveness of it, ought to make us mindful that we are accountable to God for who we are and how we live. Everything we see, everything we think, everything we say, everything that we do, we're accountable to God. And therefore, we ought to live that way. Secondly, we ought to be grateful, right? And and even though the psalmist is praying against the wicked, we all understand, don't we, that, that were it not for God's grace, we would be numbered with them. Were it not for his steadfast love, towards us through his son, we too would find ourselves with judgment over our heads. And so this should stoke us to be grateful, to have gratitude that God has not dealt with us as we deserve, but has rather dealt with us according to his mercy and his grace. And this gratitude finally ought to lead to humility. God has shown us his grace and mercy. Therefore, we ought to be the most humble people on earth As we come to the Lord's table today, as we sing his praises, may God grant us a sense of accountability to him and gratitude and humility. May we be reminded that though my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up, and that the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. Let's pray. Father, these words are hard at times to hear. There's still so much that we would like to make sense of. But we do at a real base level understand that wickedness and evil, anything that is apart from you, deserves to be judged, including us, were it not for your son Jesus. And so we are thankful, we're grateful, we're joyful. Help us to live in light of this truth today. Help us to love others in light of this truth today. May we see the suffering that goes on around us and, and do something. May we cry out. May we put our hands to the plow, we pray. Amen.